Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Thank you, Father. Mark chapter 5 is a very familiar story to everybody. Now, tonight's your normal healing service, right? So we're going to kind of go a direction of healing. Is that all right? Mark chapter 5, starting at verse 21, it says, When Jesus was passed over again by ship unto the other side, much people gathered unto him, and he was nigh to the sea. And behold, there cometh one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. And when he saw him, he fell at his feet and asked him, I mean, he grabbed his ankles, fell at his feet. Here, this ruler of the synagogue, this important man, came, and, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet and besought him greatly, saying, My little daughter lieth at the point of death. Come and lay thy hands on her, that she may be healed, and she shall live. I love what Jairus said. Come and lay thy hands on her, that she may be healed, and she shall live. Amen? Not maybe. Not a hope so. Not if it's God's will. No, you come and lay your hands upon her that she may be healed and she shall live. And so Jesus just did what he always does. He said, okay, I'll just go to your house. Jesus makes house calls. Amen? He always did, still does today. You know, you never saw anybody come to Jesus and say, hey, Jesus, I've got a problem. I need healing. I need deliverance. I need this. I need that. You never heard him say, well, call my office. You never heard him say, come back next Thursday. You never heard him say, well, you know, we'll sign you up for several sessions. I was on my way out of a church one time and, and, and had been in the church during the daytime visiting with the pastor. Maybe we'd had lunch or something. I don't know. I was on my way out, and a lady in the church was coming in. And she said, hello, Brother Terry, sure enjoyed the service yesterday. Or, and, and Well, hello, good, good sister, how you, how you doing? And uh, she said, fine. She said, I'm just, here, I'm just here for my deliverance session. And I said, you're what? She said, well, my deliverance session. I said, session? Session? You're here for a session? Jesus didn't have sessions. Can you imagine Jesus having a deliverance session? No, the Bible says he cast them out with his word. He cast out demons with his word. He didn't say come back Tuesday and we'll have another session and come back next Tuesday and we'll have another session. Come back the Tuesday after that we'll have another session. And I said to her, I said, you know, by your use of the word session, I'm assuming this isn't your first one. She said, oh, no, she, this is like, I don't know what it was, her ninth session. And I said, well, I'm assuming by your word se- use of the word session, this probably isn't your last one. She said, oh, no, I've got an appointment next week, same time. And I said, well, dear sister, I have a question for you. She said, what is it? I said, when do you get delivered? When does it work? Hello? You know, the church is kind of like that today. We, we, we mentally dumb down the word of God to where we kind of say well Jesus is kind of like the world and kind of like the businessman and kind of like the doctor and kind of like this guy and kind of like that guy I mean sometimes it works sometimes it doesn't and, and, and you no know, Jesus isn't like that isn't that right he's not bound to the beggarly elements of this world like everybody else is 
And he's given us a word which is a lifestyle, not just a sermon, a lifestyle. And shows us, he showed us personally how to do it. He said, let me show you this can be done. He came as a man. He came as a human. He didn't come as God. It wouldn't be fair if he came as God. Because we'd say, well, hey, that's not fair. You're God. Sure, you can raise the dead. That's not fair. You're God. Sure, you can heal the sick. But he didn't come as God. He came as man. Isn't that right? He was never, ever, ever any less than God, but never, never, never any more than man. When does it work? Session. Session. Well, Jairus fell down and grabbed him by the ankles. Said, Jesus, Master. Now, this is an important guy. This is a ruler in the synagogue. I mean, he's, 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 he's way up there as far as power and authority and, you know, both legally and spiritually. I mean, he's, he's, he's one of the head guys in town. And he grabs Jesus by the ankles and, Master, my little daughter lieth at home sick come and lay thy hands on her that she may be healed and she shall live jesus said sure let's go let's go to your house now notice as long as we're just going to heal the little sick girl notice that jesus let everybody go with him everybody went with him the 12 disciples went with him plus this whole crowd the bible says there was a whole crowd there i mean a whole multitude that met him and so whenever he started off to jairus's house with jairus the whole crowd just went with him oh hallelujah we're all going down to jairus's house to heal the little sick girl and jesus just let him go he didn't care but as they went now, now get yourself a mental picture of this as they went there's this whole crowd of people following Jesus and some of them are touching him and trying to touch him and, and some of them are trying to get to him and the disciples are kind of around him in a circle and they're trying to keep him off. You know, I've, I've had the same thing happen to me time and time again in, in crusades. I'm going to a crusade with 100,000 people and I mean they'll begin, to, they'll begin to try to get to you. They'll begin to try to touch you. I've had them grab my clothes. I've had them grab my wife's clothes, my kids' clothes. You know, I've, I've had them grab my hand, try to kiss my ring, you know, and, 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 and fall down and grab me by the ankles, try to kiss my feet. And, you know, when somebody falls at your ankles and grabs you like that, you can't, you, you know, you can't go very far. And, and, and so, and you're always picking them up and saying, no, no, it's not me, it's Jesus. No, 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 get up, get up, it's not me, it's Jesus. And uh, that's what was going on with Jesus. And so these people were thronging him, the Bible says. They were thronging him trying to get to him, trying to touch him, trying to get around him. And they're just walking. This whole entourage is walking. And then here comes a woman that has no clue that she's interrupting a miracle. She doesn't know they're going to Jairus' house. She doesn't know the little sick girl's dying. She doesn't know that. She just knows that she has an issue of blood, that she's been bleeding for 12 years, hemorrhaging for 12 years, and she's bleeding to death. She just knows she has a serious, serious problem and has had it for 12 years. And the Bible says she was nothing better, but rather grew, what? Worse. And she had been to how many physicians? Many physicians. She she had spent how much money? She had spent all her money. And here she is in a situation. Now, not only does she not have any money anymore, not only is is she bleeding to death, but... It's illegal for her to be in public. 
Because according to Jewish law, uh, if, you, if you've got this issue of blood and she's bleeding, she can't be in public. She has to cry like a, like a leper would have to cry and say, unclean, 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 and people would give a wide berth and she'd have to go off. Go off. And if she did get in public where, where people uh, were around, then they could stone her to death. That was the law. And the very guy that had the authority to stone her to death was who? Jairus, the leader of the synagogue. He's the very guy that can say, hey, kill her. Stoned her to death. So here she's coming in, interrupting this miracle, but she doesn't know it. She doesn't know a little sick, little, there's a little sick girl involved. She doesn't know the little girl's sick and dying. She doesn't know Jesus is on his way to, to heal her. She just knows that she's sick, she's dying, she's bleeding, she's hurting, she's been all that she had, she's been to all these doctors, it's been 12 years, she's not better, she's worse. And somebody, we don't know who, but somebody had the guts, the nerve, the love, the compassion to go to her, even though it was illegal to go to her, even though she's unclean. They went to her and said, you know what? Jesus is doing miracles right and left. If you can get to him, he can heal you. How do we know that happened? Because it says right there, when she heard, somebody told her, when she heard, when she heard of Jesus, when she heard of Jesus, so you don't know who you're affecting out here in town. You don't know who you're affecting. You don't know when you pick up, uh, grab something to eat, or you go to this place or that place, or you see somebody here, or see somebody there, or, or somebody that you, you know, you're shopping and you're, you're, you're buying something from a car. You, you don't know how they're hurting and what problems they have, and just one little word from you could change their life. And one little word from somebody changed this lady's life. Because when she heard of Jesus, faith comes by what? Hearing when she heard of Jesus, it created faith in her heart, and she thought, you know what, if I can get to this Jesus guy, I can be healed. But then she thought, well, you know what, I can't get to this Jesus guy because I'm it's illegal for me to be in public. If I get out in public, they'll stone me to death. So I can't call attention to myself. I can't tell anybody I'm there. I can't walk up and say, Hey, I'm bleeding to death. How about praying for me? I can't do that. They'll stone me to death. They'll kill me. She said, so I'll tell you what I'll do. If I can just touch the hem of his garment, if I can just touch his clothes, I shall be made whole. Said it with her mouth, believed it in her heart. If I can just touch his clothes. Now, see, she wasn't trying to touch his clothes to, 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 to be spiritual. She wasn't trying to touch her clothes to, to, to prove a point. She was trying to touch his clothes so that she could just get in and get out and nobody would know she's there. She just going to sneak in the crowd, reach over there and touch his clothes, receive her healing, and just sneak right back, gone, and nobody would ever know the difference. That was her plan. And so here she comes. She comes to find Jesus. She's on her way to a miracle. Jairus is on his way to a miracle. Are you on your way to a miracle tonight? Now, here's the problem that happens sometimes. Sometimes when you're on your way to a miracle, it looks really, really good. I mean, everything looks great. You went to church, you got the Bible, you got the Word, built your faith, got excited and said, hey, this is working, hey, this is good. Hey, the sky is blue, the grass is green, the birds are singing. Jesus said, Lord, this is all good. And then the bottom falls out. And that's what happens to Jairus. Man, Jesus is going to his house. 
How happy must Jairus be? He goes to Jesus, falls down, grabs his ankle, and says, if my little daughter lies at home at the point of death, if you come and lay your hands on her that she may be healed, she shall live, not knowing what Jesus would do about that, not knowing if he'd come or not, not knowing anything about it. And Jesus said, sure, let's go to your house. Man, here's Jesus and Jairus just arm in arm walk into his house to heal my little baby princess. Jairus had to be happy as a hog in a turnip patch, man. I mean, he's, he's excited about this. Jesus is coming to my house to heal my baby. This is wonderful. And so they're walking along. And the 12 disciples are walking along surrounding them. And this whole multitude of people are pushing and shoving and going along too. And they're talking and they're, they're happy and they're going back and forth. And some of them are trying to touch Jesus. Some of them are trying to get to him. And so they're just, they're just going along. Here's the, that's the scene. And all of a sudden, here comes this little woman and just sneaks through the crowd, makes her way through. Excuse me, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me. And she finally gets up there, and here's the disciples, and they're surrounding Jesus. She said, man, i got to get through this. You know, and, she, and so finally she somehow gets through and reaches out and touches his clothes and then turns to walk off. But the Bible says here that when she, when she touched his clothes, it says that she felt in her body that she was healed of that plague. And it says, straightway the fountain of her blood dried up. But when she touched him and got healed, then she just turned to go. She's done. She's not going to tell anybody, Dale, that she's there. She's just, she just leaving. And all of a sudden, Jesus stopped. And Jesus and Jesus just walking along, and Jesus stops. Jairus still walking. Oh, Jesus, come on, Jesus. Come on, Jesus. Jesus, hey, Jesus. My baby, my baby. And Jesus is standing over here saying, Wow. Who who just touched my clothes? Who just touched me? Because the Bible says that he felt virtue going out of him. The original language, virtues, is the excellent manifestation of the power of God. So he's walking along with Jairus, and all of a sudden, all of a sudden, the excellent manifestation of the power of God just goes out of him. I mean, all of a sudden, there's a, there's a healing flow, a healing anointing, a power of God that goes out of him into this woman, and he felt it. And he just stopped. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Who, who, uh, who, wow. Hey, who, who just touched my clothes? And this little woman, she's leaving. And the disciples, I don't know if y'all ever read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John or not, but the disciples were usually not very happy with Jesus. (laughs) You just read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John once in a while, and you'll see that they just most of the time just were not happy with Jesus. Most of the time he irritated them. Most of the time he did something they didn't like. Most of the time they were trying to do something right and it didn't go right and they, you know. And uh, this day was no different. This day, whenever he said, who who touched my clothes? They said, Master, thou seest the multitude thronging thee and sayest thou, who touched me? What do you mean, who touched me? Every, every, every last one of them been touching you. We're doing the best we can to keep them off of you, but the whole bunch of them are touching you. Why would you say something dumb like that? Who touched my clothes? Isn't that what they said? Master, you see the whole bunch of them touching you and thronging you and pushing and shoving, and yet you'd ask something as dumb as, who touched my clothes? But he just ignored them. He said, yeah, but somebody touched me in faith. 
Somebody got virtue out of me. A lot of people touched me, but somebody touched me in faith. Somebody got virtue out of me. Somebody got the excellent manifestation of the power of God. Who touched me? Who did that? And it says the little woman fearing and trembling, knowing what was done in her, knowing what was done in her, stopped, fell down before him. He picked her up and talked to her. And the Bible says this. It says, and she told him all the truth. Now, Dale, I've been in ministry a long time. You've been in ministry a long time. I know those little ladies. I've met them all over the world. I've met them in this nation. I've met them in other nations. I know those little ladies. When, when it says she told him all the truth, that takes a while. Because they tell you, I mean, I know these ladies. They tell you the doctors they've been to. They tell you their names, the names of the doctor. They tell you the medicines they prescribe, the prescriptions they prescribe. They tell you how many times a day they have to tell you. They tell you how much it costs. They tell you what the aches are and what the pains are and what the symptoms were. I mean, they're happy about this. They're happy about getting healed. And so Jesus just stood there and did what I do. I just stand there and I just stand there like this and say, yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Really? My, my. Yes, ma'am. Well, praise the Lord. Really? He costs that much? Really? Well, I'll be. Well, praise the Lord. Well, I'm so glad you got here. Yeah. Oh, yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Oh, she wasn't through. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> they, tell you, they tell you all the truth. And that's what this little lady was doing. She was telling Jesus about 12 years of bleeding to death, illegal, threat of death from from the law, besides dying of a hemorrhage. And all the doctors she'd been to, she'd been to how many physicians? Many physicians. She spent all that she had, no more money, and she's nothing better but rather grew worse. And she's telling Jesus this whole deal. Now, while Jesus is just standing there listening to all this, yes, ma'am, yes, ma'am, yes, ma'am, what's the Irish doing? Man, he's over here fit to be tied. He's over here, come on, Jesus, come on. Who cares about that woman? I'm, I'm, I'm the ruler of the synagogue. I could have her put to death. I mean, I mean, come on, Jesus, let's go. My baby, my baby, let's go, Jesus, come on. The disciples are all irritated. This is kind of a day in the life of Jesus. I mean, if you start this, it starts over in, in, in chapter 4 where Jesus is preaching to this huge multitude and he turns around and says, hey, guys, let's get in the boat and go pass over the other side. And they said, okay, sure, get in the boat. So they get in the boat and start over the other side. Here comes this storm. He's asleep. He's tired. They wake him up. Master, don't you care? We're all going to die. He gets up and speaks to the wind and the waves and they obey him. Then they got to the other side. And the instant they stepped off the boat on the other side, what happens? Here comes a demon-possessed guy, the demoniac of the Gadarenes. And this guy's absolutely insane, demon-possessed, and everybody in town knows him. They've been chaining him up with chains. He breaks the chains. He goes around, you know, tearing stuff up, eating all the garbage. I mean, he goes, I mean, he's just caused, he cuts himself, screams and yells all the time. I mean, I don't know if you've ever seen a demon-possessed person or not, but uh, it's not pretty. 
And uh, Jesus tells these demons to go, and they say, well, can we go into pigs? He said, sure, I don't like pigs anyway. I mean, he's a Jew, right? Yeah, help yourself. Go into pigs. What do I care? And so they go into these 2,000 pigs, and the pigs run off the cliff and commit suicide. And that irritates the townspeople because that's their livelihood. So they come running out, not happy that the demon-possessed guy is delivered now, but irritated that the pigs are dead. And their philosophy in that town was kind of like the philosophy of the church today. Lord, (laughs) solve my problems, but save my pigs. Isn't that right? So they just told him to get out of town. They said, we don't like you. Just get out of town. Just leave. So he just turns around and gets back in the boat. And they go back across the water again. Now, some of y'all have been to that water. It's not very big water. You know, I could be across it in 10 minutes in my bass boat. I mean, you know, that's not, that's, not a very big, that's not a very big piece of water. And so they went over, and now they're coming back. And, and as soon as they step off the boat, when they got back on the other side, the side they started on, he steps out of the boat, and here's this multitude thronging him. And Jairus grabbing him by the ankle, saying, Come, 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 my daughter's dying. I mean, this is all just a day in the life of Jesus. He hadn't quit yet. And now this little woman's telling him all the truth. And he's just standing there very patiently. Yes, ma'am. Praise the Lord. Yes, ma'am. That's wonderful. I'm so glad you got healed. I'm so glad you got healed. And while this is going on, here comes certain from the master of the synagogue's house who said, don't trouble the master any further. Your daughter's dead. Can you imagine how that must have sounded to him as a dad? Your daughter's dead, 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 dead. What are you doing down here troubling the master? What are you doing down here? I mean, you know, you, you need to be at home. I mean, your wife's at home uh, hysterical. Your, your mother's there. Your mother-in-law's there. The aunts are there. The cousins are there. The family's there. They're all, they're all upset. They're all hysterical. And you're off down here at church? You're off down here with Jesus? What are you doing down here? There's, there's things that decent people need to do at a time like this. You need to be home. And Jesus hears all this. And the Bible says, the, the word tells us that when he heard what was said, he turned to Jairus and said, well, the Bible just tells us, Fear not, only believe. But I, I remember reading that just as a teenager. And I was just reading along. And, and when Jesus heard the word that was said, he turned to Jairus and said, says, Fear not, only believe. And the Lord spoke to me and said, said, Don't just pass over that so quick. He said, I didn't just say, Fear not, only believe. He said, I was saying something to the man. I mean, Jesus looked him right in the eye and said, said Let me t- Jairus, don't you fear on me. Don't you get in fear. Don't you get in fear. Don't you fear on me. you fear on me well you'll bury your daughter but if you'll if you'll hook up with me it's going to be all right now watch what happens now jesus totally changes his mode of operation totally changes the way he's acting he doesn't say anything different he doesn't say the little girl's dead but all of a sudden when he hears she's dead he totally changes everything he's doing a while ago, the little girl was sick, and they're all going to see the little sick girl. He let all the disciples come with him. He let all the people come with him. He didn't care. But now she's dead, and, and there's a difference. There's a difference. Now he's going to go raise the dead. And so he totally changes. And he says, 
He gets real stern. He says, don't you fear on me. You fear not, only believe. Peter, James, John, you go with me. Guys, Andrew, Thomas, you guys, you stay here. Keep this crowd here. I don't want any of this crowd coming with me. Nobody's coming with me. You guys see to it. They don't come with me. Peter, James, John, let's go. Come on, let's go. So he leaves all his disciples except Peter, James, and John. Leaves that whole crowd. Doesn't let them come. Now he's on a mission. Now, now he's going to raise the dead. So he just totally changed. Doesn't say anything different. But you can just watch how he changes his attitude and how he changes his manner and how he changes his operation. Things got, things got jacked up a little bit. They got, they got a little more serious. So now, now he doesn't need a whole crowd of unbelievers. Now he doesn't need this whole crowd of people saying, I wonder what Jairus did wrong. I wonder what sin his wife committed. I wonder, I wonder why this baby, I wonder why this baby died. I wonder, uh, uh, you know, I, I don't know if it's God's will or not. Well, I'm not sure we ought to do that. He didn't need that. He didn't need that. All of a sudden, he's gotten real stern in very own purpose. And he said, you guys stay here and you keep this crowd here. I don't want anybody coming with me. Peter, James, John, let's go. Let's go. Let's go now. And he turns around and takes Jairus, and boy, they head to the house. And when they get to the house, he walks in, and there's all the relatives, the friends, and they're weeping, crying. The Bible says they were making a tumult. I mean, they were really wailing and carrying on. And uh, Jesus walks into this thing and makes, has to get a hold of it, has to get in control of it, has to take authority and dominion over it. So he, he, he makes a statement that he knows is going to get, get on under everybody's skin. And he makes a statement not of what he sees, but what he wants to see. So he made this statement. He said, hey, why do you make this ado and weep? Why are y'all carrying on so much? The damsel's not dead, but sleepeth. Well, now he knows she's dead. And he knows they know she's dead. But he doesn't say what he sees. He says what he wants to see. He says what the end result is going to be. Why do you cry? Why are you carrying on? Why are you doing? Why do you weep and make this ado? The damsel's not dead, but sleep. He's speaking faith into an, into an atmosphere that's just embalmed with unbelief and grief and terror. I mean, this little girl has just died and all these people are upset about it. And rightly so, we get that. Are you here? And so he has to overcome that. He has to speak life into darkness. He has to speak faith into unbelief. He has to speak life into death. So he says, why are you making this? Why do you weep and make a, make a big deal like this? The damsel's not dead. The little girl's not dead. She's just asleep. And I'm going to wake her up. Well, what did they do? When he said that, did they say, oh, praise the Lord? No. It says they laughed him to scorn. They made fun of him. They, they mocked him. They jeered at him. They, 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 they laughed him to scorn, to scorn. What did he do? Kicked him out of the house. It's not even his house. That's pretty bad when you kick grandma out of the house and it's not even your house. I mean, grandma's there crying. Her grandbaby's dead. And he said, hey, out of the house, out. Not his house. What's he doing? He's taking spiritual authority. He's taking dominion. He's getting in control. He's eliminating the doubt, the fear, the unbelief. Is he being politically correct? No. Is he afraid he's going to hurt somebody's feelings? No, he knows he's going to hurt their feelings. 
He knows he is. In fact, you know what the Bible, Mark, you know what the Bible calls Jesus? The rock of offense. He was Mr. Offense. He was anointed to offend people. Isn't that right? He was not Mr. Nice Guy, Mr. Politically Correct, Mr. Say the Right Thing, Mr. Make Everybody Feel Good. No, he was the rock of offense, anointed to offend people. But the bottom line was he helped whoever he's trying to help because you can either help the one you're trying to help and offend these folks or you can make these folks all feel good and not help this person that needs help. Because you're usually not going to accomplish both of those things. Isn't that right? Now, he could go in there and say, Oh, Grandma, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Uh, you know, this is terrible. This is all. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And, and that's fine. You can do that. That's not a problem. Except she's the baby girl's going to stay dead. Better to offend Grandma now because in 15 minutes when that little girl's up and running around, Grandma's going to forget all about being offended. She's going to be all happy that she's got her grandbaby back. Isn't that right? And so he just kicks them all out of the house. When he gets them all out of the house, he takes, he takes Jairus and the mama, and then Peter, James, and John, walks in where the little girl is, takes her by the hand, and says, Talitha Kumi, which being interpreted, is damsel, I say unto thee, arise. And she got up. She says she got up and walked. And he told him to give her something to eat. She was about 12 years old and told her to give, give him something to eat. Now, Jairus was on his way to a miracle. The woman with the issue of blood was on her way to a miracle. And they both got the miracle. Both got what they were believing for. Both got what they said. The lady said, if I can just but touch his clothes, I shall be made whole. So she did. She snuck in there, touched his clothes, got what she said. Jairus said, come and lay thy hands on her that she may be healed and she shall live. And so Jesus went to his house and put his hand on her, took her by the hand. What if he had just said, Jesus, my little daughter, life at home at the point of death, speak the word only and she'll be healed. Well, he could have just spoke the word and should have been healed. Jesus met him at his point of faith and met the lady at her point of faith, the thing that they were believing for, the thing that they decreed, the thing that they declared. Now, what if, what if when Jesus was listening to the little lady tell all the truth and he heard the person from, come from Jairus' house say, don't trouble the master anymore, your, your daughter's dead, what, what if Jairus had said something? He could have blown the whole thing. But the best, the smartest thing Jairus ever did in his life was keep his mouth shut. When they came and said, don't trouble the master any further, your daughter's dead, he kept his mouth shut. The last thing that came out of Jairus' mouth was, come and lay thy hand on her that she may be healed and she shall live. That's why Jesus turned on him so quick and said, don't you fear on me. Don't you get in fear. And you keep your mouth shut. last thing you said was good. Don't say anything else. Does that make sense to you? But see, Jairus is on his way to America. It looked good. Man, it looked good. Jesus is going to my house. 
This is wonderful. This is marvelous. Jesus is going to my house. He's going to heal my baby girl. It's, 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 I mean, the sky's blue, the grass is green, the birds are singing. This is great. And all of a sudden, the bottom falls out. And see, that's happened to some of you, maybe many of you. And when the bottom falls out, and it looks like the miracle you just thought you had isn't going to happen, that's the time to keep your confession up and keep your faith up. Amen? And just press in further and press in harder and say, no, I'm going to get, I'm going to get this. I'm going to get this. I'm not going to quit. I'm not going to quit. I'm not going to quit. Amen? You know, Matthew chapter, you don't have to turn here, but Matthew chapter 14, Mark chapter 6, Luke chapter 9, and John chapter 6, all four Gospels, tell us the story of what we all call, what the church calls, the feeding of the multitude or the feeding of the 5,000. Now, I think it's extremely important whenever, whenever all four Gospels tell us the same miracle. That rarely, rarely happens. You know, one Gospel will tell us or two Gospels will tell us once in a while. You'll see it in three Gospels. But this miracle you see in all four Gospels, that always gets my attention. Very, very rare does that happen. When I, when I find some miracle that's told in all four Gospels, I say, you know what, I better pay attention to this. I better learn something here. God's telling us something. I mean, all, all four of these apostles uh, put this in their gospel. This, this, this has to be there for a reason because all Scripture is inspired of the Holy Ghost, right? The Holy Ghost put that stuff in there. It's kind of like the letters of the apostles. All those letters, they're in there from Paul. All the letters in there from James and, and from John. And, you know, John's got First John, Second John, Third John. Well, there's no telling how many letters John actually wrote to the church. He may have written hundreds. Don't tell how many letters Paul actually wrote to the churches. They may have written hundreds. But several of them, the Holy Ghost said, these need to be in the Bible. These need to speak to the church 2,000 years from now. Right? Faith is never, ever going to change. It's those immutable laws, those unchangeable laws, those laws that are incapable of change that God set out from the beginning as long as time remains. I mean, when God says something, that's just the way it's going to be. There's seed time and there's harvest. And it's always going to happen. You can take you, the stuff God tells you, you, you the stuff that God puts in the Word, you can just take that to the bank. Amen. But anyway, all four Gospels tell us this story of the feeding of the multitude. We know, according to the four Gospels, we know that there was 5,000 men there besides the women and children. We don't know how many was in that crowd, but it's easy to extrapolate that out and say, well, at least there was, there was 15 or 20,000 people there. I mean, there's, there's, there, if there's 5,000 men there, you know there's more women, right? You know there's more women there, and you know there's a bunch of kids. So, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of folks there. And they're just all sitting out there, and Jesus is preaching. And... Uh, and he's been preaching to them for a long time. Sometimes we forget that Jesus was a preacher. Isn't that right? Sometimes we forget that. But Jesus was a preacher. Don't ever forget he was a preacher. And he was a long-winded preacher, which gives me great hope. <laughs> and uh, he had been preaching. One of the gospels said he had been preaching out there for three days. It's been going on for a while. And this is a desert place. There's no, oh, thank heaven for 7-Eleven. There's no McDonald's. You deserve a break today. There, there's nothing out there. And, uh, and so he's been preaching for a long time. And the people are just staying with him. 
I mean 15, 20,000 people, whatever it is out there. I mean men, women, children. They're out there and they're just staying with him, staying with him, staying with him. I mean they can leave any time they want to, but they're, they're staying with him. But the disciples are tired. Now, I've noticed over the years that it's, it's not the people that get tired. The people stay with you, but that preacher bunch will get tired on you. That Bible school bunch will get tired on you. That bunch that, that thinks they know it all. Nothing wrong with preachers, nothing wrong with the Bible school students. It's just that we all know that when you're, when you're, when you're young and, and, you know, full of vinegar and fire and think you know it all and you're just out of Bible school and think you know everything, you know, you just, you, it's just not the same as when you get a little mature and, and understand some things. And so these disciples, they're just irritated again. I don't know what they're irritated about. I don't know what they're mad about, but they're upset. Maybe Jesus preached this the last place they was at. Maybe they've already heard this sermon three or four or five times. I don't know what it was, but all of a sudden they're, they're done. And they start talking among themselves. That's always dangerous. You start seeing the staff over there talking among themselves. You know, it's time to, time to check in and see what's going on because they're no longer with you. And they're, they're back here talking behind Jesus' back. Jesus is preaching to all these people. The people are happy uh, and going along with it. But the disciples sitting back there saying, Dear Lord, I wish he had hush. Man, it's been going on a long time. Yeah, we've already heard this before anyway. I, I wish he had hush too. Tell you what, I'm hungry. Man, I'm hungry too. What are we going to do? Let's see if we can get him to hush. Let's tell him to hush. And they may have talked about who's going to do it. You know, Peter, you tell me. I'm going to tell him. I told him last time. And somehow they arrived at the decision to get Philip to tell him. Somehow Philip won or lost, whichever way you want to look at it. Got the short straw. And so they said, okay, Philip, you go tell him to hush. But now, but now, now, don't tell him we're tired and hungry. He doesn't care about us. Tell him, tell him. Point those little kids out. Tell him those little kids are tired. He loves kids. Tell him the kids are tired and the kids are hungry and there's no place out here for them to get something to eat. To send them away to get something to eat. Are, are, are y'all here? That's how human nature is, isn't it? Yeah. And uh, now Jesus is just preaching along. And, and I'm assuming, I'm assuming that he, he's preaching good. You know, I'm assuming that he's anointed because he's the anointed one. Right? I'm assuming he's preaching the word because he's Mr. Word. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. It's, you know, drop down about verse 14. And it says, and he, his name is Jesus. He dwelt among, he dwelt, you know, became flesh and dwelt among men. And so he's the anointed one and he's, and he's, and he's Mr. Word. So I'm assuming he's anointed and I'm assuming he's preaching the word. But that didn't seem to matter to these guys. They want him to hush. And so he's just preaching. And he, all of a sudden, he gets a tap on the back, and he turns around, and there's Philip. Philip, what is it? I'm, I'm, I'm preaching. Yes, sir, I know, Lord. That, that's what I want to talk to you about. You've been preaching a long time. And uh, this is a desert place, and, and, and these people are tired. Look at those little kids out there. See those little kids, man? They're, they're so tired, and they're so hungry, and there's no place out there to get anything to eat. And, you know, have mercy. Send them away and get them something to eat. Well, it didn't go quite as Philip thought it would go. Because Jesus all of a sudden looked at him with those coals of fire he had for eyes, and he said, all right, hot shot, fine. Feed them. Don't you know Philip said, oh, never mind, Lord, you just preach. You just keep on preaching as long as you want to. I'll just sit down. No, no, you said they're tired. You said they're hungry. You said I should send them away and feed them. You feed them now. 
And what did Philip do? The Bible says he looked in the bag, took a quick count of the money, and told Jesus, we can't do it. King James says it like this, Lord, 200 penny worth is not sufficient that each of these may take a little. We don't have enough money to feed them. Now, did Jesus ask for a financial statement? No. Did Jesus say, we got enough money to feed these folks? No. He said, Philip, can we feed these folks? No. He said, Philip, feed them. And Philip looked in the bag. How many times has God told us to do something? To move in faith. To build something. To do something. To go somewhere. To what? And, and we've looked in the bag. Or we've looked in the bank account. Or we've looked under the mattress. Or we've looked in the cookie jar. Or we've listened to the talking heads on TV. Or we've listened to the politicians. And they said the economy's bad. And this is bad. And you can't do it. And, you can't, and, and we've said, sorry, Lord, we can't do it. What if there had been an atheist in the crowd? Now, the Bible doesn't say there was. I'm just making this up. Most of the time I preach you the word. Sometimes I just make stuff up. I'm making this up. What if there had been, been an atheist in the crowd? And what if Jesus said, excuse me, excuse me, is there an atheist in the crowd? And this guy over here lifts his hand. Sir, you're an atheist? Yes, I am. Well, that's great. Maybe you can help me. You see, I've been preaching to these people a long time. My disciples say entirely too long, and they want me to send them all away so I can get, they can get something to eat. I, I, my idea is I'd rather just feed them right here. Uh, wh- what do you think about that? Can you, can you give me some advice? What would an atheist say? What would a businessman say? What would anybody say? He'd say, how much money you got? I mean, that's the answer, right? That's the standard answer. That's the intelligent answer. You tell me how much money you got, I'll tell you whether you can feed them or not. But isn't that funny that that's what the disciples said? And there ought to be a difference in atheists and disciples. What's the, what's, the, what's, the, what's the difference here between this imaginary atheist and Philip the disciple? The difference would be that the, the atheist would be a, a professing atheist and a practicing atheist where Philip was a professing disciple but a practicing atheist. And too many times that's what the church does. We profess to be Christians. We profess to be Christ-like. We profess to be led of the Spirit, but we just talk like the world. We think like the world. We act like the world. Are you here? There should be a difference between the atheist and the disciple. Now all of a sudden a little boy comes up and goes up to Andrew. Andrew must have been a nice guy. You know, all the disciples had the same message, but they all had different personalities. You never find anybody going up to Peter. I mean, you know, get out of here. Leave me alone. But, but Andrew must have been, I've always said Andrew must have been the original charismatic. You know, I mean, I mean, you know, people just felt like they could go up to him. They felt like they could talk to him. You know, when the Greeks came to see Jesus, they went to Andrew and they said, we would see this man. Isn't that right? The little boy comes, he comes to Andrew. And so this little boy comes up to Andrew and he pulls on his coat and he says, excuse me, sir, what is it, son? What, what can I do for you? And he said, well, you know, uh, I, I, I've got this lunch that mama fixed me this morning. Got some fish and bread. Well, that's great, son. I, I, you know, I wish we all had lunch. That's why my colleague up here is in trouble. Why don't you, why don't you go over here and sit down and just, just take your lunch and wrap yourself around it and just enjoy yourself? And he said, no, 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 sir, you don't understand. I, I, I want to I wanna give my lunch to the master. 
to feed these people. So Andrew goes up to Jesus, I'm sure much to Philip's relief. And Andrew comes up and says, excuse me, Master. And I'm sure Philip snuck away about that time. And Jesus said, what is it, Andrew? What do you want? And he said, sir, there's a little boy over here. And I know you love kids, so I know you're not going to be mean to him. Just, just kind of pat him on the head and bless him and send him on his way. He's got this silly little idea that he wants to give you his lunch that Mama made this morning to feed all these folks with. So just, just, just pat him and bless him and, 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 and let him go. And, and Jesus said, gentlemen, dinner is served. And he took that little boy's lunch. And he took a fish and tore it in half, and the head grew a tail, and the tail grew a head, and he tore that in half, and the head grew a tail, and the tail grew a head, and he tore that in half, and the head grew a tail, tail grew a head. Now, I don't know how Jesus did it. I don't have any idea how he did it. But I know this. I know he had a, a, a seafood restaurant in one hand and a bakery in the other. He had an ocean in one hand, a barley field in the other. And the Bible says that he fed all those people. And the Bible says they ate. In fact, the Spanish Bible says it like this. says they ate as much as they... The King James says they ate as much as they would. The Spanish Bible says they ate until they were stuffed. So they weren't having communion. Everybody wasn't just getting a little, a little bite. No, they, they ate as much as they wanted to until they were full. However many that was, 15,000, 20,000 people. I mean, 5,000 would be impressive, but we know there's a lot more than, than that. And uh, then when they finished, there was still so much left that they gathered up 12 baskets full. 12 baskets full of remains. Isn't that convenient? One for each disciple. (laughs) No, the disciples didn't get that food. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us what happened to the food, but I know the disciples didn't get it because later they were in the boat going to the other side and Jesus said, hey, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. And they said, oh, now he's mad at us because we didn't bring lunch. So I know they didn't have... 12 baskets of bread and fish with them. Whose food was it in the first place? The little boy. Well, Jesus is no man's debtor. He's not going to take it from that little boy without blessing him. I talked to you this morning about living to give. That he's, going to take, he's going to take what you give and multiply it and give it back. The problem is when we give God zero, because we can give him zero. People give him zero every day, every day, every day, every day, every day. Zero. How much do you give the Lord today? Zero. How much did you give him Sunday? Oh, I gave him $3 Sunday, but Monday I didn't give him anything. The problem, with, the problem is you can give God zero, and he'll go ahead and take it and multiply it a hundredfold and give it back to you. <laughs> he just won't pay the rent. See, God's math is that, math, heaven's math is that God, God adds and multiplies, and the devil subtracts and divides. But whatever you give, God takes it and multiplies it, and then whatever you have, he, he adds to it. So I believe with all my heart, and I, I don't know this, the Bible doesn't tell us this, so when we get to heaven, I'm going to ask that little boy. But, uh, but uh, I believe that little boy went home empty-handed after that meeting, followed by Peter with a basket of bread, and Thomas with a basket of fish, and Judas with a basket of bread, and Bartholomew with a basket of fish. And I, I think he ended up with a major multiplication harvest of his, of his giving. Amen. The reason I love that story so much, and it's told to us in four Gospels, the reason I love it so much is because it shows us that that Jesus is the instigator of miracles. Jesus thought that miracle up. Nobody sitting there was believing for a miracle. 
Not one of those 15,000, 20,000 people was saying, hey, I'm going to believe God to feed everybody here. Nobody was thinking that. Nobody's using their faith. Nobody was saying, hey, Jesus is going to feed. No, this came straight from heaven. It was God's idea, Jesus' idea, and everybody there, everybody got the same miracle at the same time, the same blessing, just because God thought it up, just because God is the inventor and the instigator and the initiator of miracles. Isn't that cool? You know, thank God for the past. I like the past. I like history. I like all that kind of stuff. But, but, but we don't embalm it. We still have to go on. And you can't win World War III with museum relics from World War I. We just have to keep going on and keep going on and keep moving along. And as, as technology moves along and as, as, as industry moves along and as time moves along, then God's had all these ideas for centuries, but the technology wasn't there to fulfill it. So every time they finally invent a new technology, God said, okay, now use this. Now you can use this. Now you can use this. Now you can use this. So every time something comes along, we can take that and move and use it for the gospel's sake and use it for God, use it for the church, use it for the ministry, use it for heaven. Isn't that right? But, you know, for a long, 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 long time, I mean, there just wasn't the technology and stuff. Even though God had great ideas, we just couldn't do it. You know, I was telling somebody just the other day, I said, do you realize that from the time of, of well, from time immemorial, I mean, from, from, from ancient, ancient, ancient times, I mean, I mean, back to the Apostle Paul, back to Jesus, back before that, back to King David, back to, the, back to, to, to Egypt, back to Pharaoh, back, I mean, as far back as you want to go, you know, nothing really ever changed in the way of transportation until the late 1800s. I mean, you still, when you wanted to go somewhere, you walked or you rode a donkey or a horse or a camel. Then they invented wagons, so some folks got to take a wagon. Isn't that right? And if you wanted to go, go across the, the water, you used a, a, a wind-driven ship. Or an oar-driven ship. And that, that never changed for centuries and centuries and centuries. You know, the same way Jesus traveled, the same way the Apostle Paul traveled, the same way that King David traveled. But you know, then in the late 1800s, man, we got a steam engine. And things began to move along. And then when, you know when they invented the train? When they invented the train, people said it would go 50 miles an hour. And people said, why, that's impossible. If you go 50 miles an hour, you couldn't breathe. You'd all die. <laughs> but just think, just, just think in, in your lifetime. Just think about it in your parents' lifetime or your grandparents' lifetime. I mean, they, they, saw, they saw it all. They, they, your grandparents went from, went from horses and wagons to the, the train, the automobile, the airplane, you know, putting a man on the moon. And you know, the faster time moves and the faster technology comes along, the more we can, the more we can use it for the kingdom, the more we can do things for God. You know, we're, we're ministers back in the old days, back in missionaries back in the old days. I mean, even in, in, in America, if they were in Boston or in New York or on the East Coast, where most people were whenever this country was settled, and, and they wanted to go preach in, in, the, in the South Pacific or wanted to go preach in nations, you know, on that side of the world, they, they literally would take a ship from the East Coast and take it almost to Europe, which is the wrong direction. Take it almost to Europe just because of the trade winds, because that's the way the winds operate. 
And then just before they get to Europe, then they swing, swing around and come all the way back and down to South America and then go around the horn, which was extremely dangerous, extremely, extremely dangerous. And you can read histories and accounts of, of ships actually taking two and three weeks just to get around that horn, get around that cape. Because they'd try and the weather's so bad they're going to crash so they'd come back and anchor for the night. They'd try the next day and it'd be so bad they couldn't get through. They'd come back and anchor for the night. And they'd just try that for weeks on end till they finally got through. You know, and then they built the train. And so instead of, instead of going in a ship all the way around the Horn to Europe, almost to Europe and around the Horn and then to the South Pacific, they were able to take a train and go across to the West Coast and come to San Francisco and come to Los Angeles and, and take a ship from here. And then they dug the Panama Canal and said, you know what, we don't have to go around the Horn anymore. We just, we just cut through Panama. We just cut through here. And so now all shipping that goes that way and has now for all these decades and decades and decades, now instead of going around the Horn of South America, they just go through the Panama Canal. And then they built an airplane. And so now it's like, hey, we don't have to take a ship anymore. Let's just hop in a plane and Get over there. And then missionaries would stay for years and years and years simply because they, it just was too lengthy to come home and too crazy to come home. So they'd stay for 10, 15 years and then maybe come home for a year and then go back or maybe never come home. But now we can jump in a plane and be around the world and preach somewhere. And, I mean, I was in China two, three weeks ago and in Mexico last week and, and you know, then, then been several places in in the States to preach this week. We'll be in Washington, D.C. Uh, when we leave here, we go to Washington, D.C., and then we go to uh, Tennessee, and then we go to, you know, and, and, then, and then back into California again. The last Sunday this month, we'll be preaching in Anaheim. And, you know, I mean, just, just, and then we'll be in Romania for Christmas. I mean, you know, I think, I think this month, what, we're going to be home five days this whole month, which is typical, you know, five days of sleeping in our own bed. But, but we can just be around the world because of the technology. So as all this moves along, nothing changes with faith. Nothing changes in the spirit. Nothing changes with the word. All those laws are still in effect. We, we, just, get, we just get more able to do things. And we've got, we've got satellite. We've got internet. We've got television. We've got all these ways to do all these things. But, but the whole point of this is that when you're on your way to a miracle, when you're on your way to a miracle, then keep your faith switch on. Keep the switch of faith turned on. It doesn't matter what the devil does. It doesn't matter what the devil tries. It doesn't matter who all tells you it won't work and who all. You know, most of the time you're going to have detractors and you're going to have people that just just don't believe it and just and then they'll tell you they don't believe it and they'll tell you you can't believe it. And uh, sometimes it's better just to keep what you're believing for all to yourself. When God had those children of Israel march around the city of Jericho, why do you think He had them keep their mouth shut for seven days? Well, you can imagine all the dumb stuff they'd have been saying. Can you imagine going out there, that whole bunch of two million Jews going out there and marching around Jericho and looking up at those huge walls and looking up at the soldiers that are laughing at them and watching them? And can you imagine what they'd be saying? Well, you know, I don't know why we're doing this. It's the dumbest thing I ever saw. I don't know why we're marching around the city of Jericho. I think, I think, I think Joshua's out of his mind. So God just said, you know what? Keep your mouth shut for seven days. I mean, all day long, all night long, when you get back in camp and have dinner, keep your mouth shut, don't talk, don't say anything. In the seventh day, when you get out there and march around that thing seven times, then shout. Because God just wasn't going to allow the, the unbelief. 
when that angel came to Mary and said, you're going to have a baby, and then goes over to Elizabeth and tells Elizabeth she's going to have a baby, going to have John the Baptist, and then, then her husband, who's the, who's the priest, he says, well, how's this going to be? How come we're going to do that? We're not going to name, we're not going to name him uh, John. We're going to name him something else. And the angels have said, you know what? I'm not going to mess with you for nine months. You're not going to talk <laughs> because your talking is going to mess up this faith deal. So just better you keep your mouth shut. And the guy couldn't talk for nine months. Finally, when Elizabeth gives birth to John the Baptist, they ask, they ask his daddy, he said, well, what's his name going to be? And he couldn't talk, so he's got a, he has got a paper and wrote down, John. And he is able to talk after that. Because it's vital what you say when you're on your way to a miracle. It's vital what you say. It's vital what you do. God said to Joshua in chapter 1 and verse 8, he told him three things to do. And he said, if you'll do this, you'll prosper and be successful. And he said, you're going to have to talk like God, think like God, act like God. The Bible says it like this, let not this book of the law depart from out of your mouth or talk like God. That thou, may, that thou mayest meditate, meditate day and night on this word or think like God, think like God, think like God. That thou mayest observe to do, to do, to do, to be a doer, to do according to A.W. all longest word in the Bible, all that's written therein or act like God. And then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and then thou shalt have good success. Talk like God, think like God, act like God. Don't talk like the world, don't think like the world, don't act like the world, especially when you're in a faith crisis, especially when you're in a faith project, especially especially when you're on your way to a miracle. That's not the time to listen to to the aunts and the uncles and and, and, and all the friends and all the folks and get their opinion. What do you think about this? That's the last thing you will know is what they think about it. You need one opinion, one opinion only, and that's God's. God, what do you think about it? We've got a little book that we, we put out. Usually I have them with me, and I'd, I'd give them to you for your sign up be on the mailing list because they're a tremendous little book. But uh, Brother Copeland's ministry was there this last week and on, on television at the church and so on. And, so, and they gave it away. And so that's why there's not a lot of stuff back there. And that's why the Spiritual Authority Series isn't back there. You'd have to order it because they, they sold the, like crazy at Brother Copeland's ministry. And, uh, uh, but I wrote this little book called God's Opinion of You. God's opinion of you. You don't want to know what anybody else thinks about you. You want to know what God thinks about you. What does God think about you? What what should you see when you get up in the morning and look yourself in the mirror? What should you see? Should you just see an old sinner saved by grace? Should you just see old uh, uh, your righteousness is a filthy rag? Should you just see a loser and a and a and a, and a sinner and a bad person? No, no, no. You need to see what God sees. God sees you as the righteousness of God. He sees you as healed, as blessed, as prosperous. He sees you as the salt of the earth. He sees you as the light of the world. He sees you as the righteousness of God. He sees you as, as, the, as the sons of God, the heirs of God, joint heirs with Jesus Christ. He, he sees you all these ways in the word of God, and, and yet we come along and say, hey, I don't see that. That's not who I am. What's your opinion? What do you think? I don't know what you think. You don't want to know what anybody thinks. You want to know what God thinks. I remember I went, whenever I wrote that little book, I went and gave it to my pastor. And uh, Jackie and I were all living in Mexico. We came back and visited our home church we was raised in. And, and I gave it to my pastor. I said, Pastor, I thought you might enjoy this little book I gave you. And I handed it to him, a little mini book, God's Opinion of You. And I'll never forget, he just took it and kind of folded it up like a taco, you know. And he held it out at arm's length like this. And he just stared at it for a long time. And I'm just standing there waiting on him. 
And finally, he said, God's opinion of you. He just stood there and looked at it. And then he just shook his head no like this and just handed it back to me. He said, you know, Terry, I don't think I want to know what God's opinion of me is. And I said, Pastor, you really need to read this. You really, really need to read this. He said, no, I don't think so. And, uh, you know, I ended up preaching his funeral. But we want to know what God thinks. We want to know what God said. You know, the Apostle Paul, what time is it? Oh, my goodness, it's 20 late. Y'all still with me? You all right? You all right? The Apostle Paul made a statement in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 2. He said, I'm not an apostle to everybody, but I am to you. Now, isn't that amazing? Can you imagine people going to hear the Apostle Paul preach and yet not receiving him as an apostle? But they did. People didn't receive him at all. Many, many people didn't. Can you imagine hearing Jesus preach and not receiving him? But they did. They didn't. They went to hear him preach and just said, I don't know. He's nobody. But Paul said this. He said, I'm not an apostle to everybody. Everybody, everybody, I'm not an apostle to everybody. But I am to you. I am to you. See, your pastor, Mike Webb, is not a pastor to everybody in this town. But he is to you. Or is he? That's not even up to him. It's up to you. That's not up to him. He's not going to come grab you by the neck. Hey, I'm your pastor. No, you have to say, I accept this man. I receive. This man is my pastor. I receive him as my pastor. He's my pastor. He, he has the right to speak into my life. Right? And if you'll learn to do that with apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, if you'll learn how to make a demand on that gift, how to make a demand on that office, learn how to pull on that office, pull on that gift, whenever they stand up and pull it to preach, if you learn to do that, you'll get something from them that the person sitting behind you or in front of you or next to you won't get it all. You know, everybody might leave the service and say, you know what, it's like that service this morning. I wanted so badly for, for people to get that this morning. Oh, dear. I, I told Renee after we left, I said, oh, I just want so badly for people to get that, just to embrace their lives. They'd change their lives. But, you know, I realize that some people just went over their head and they didn't get it at all. And they left here probably saying, well, that was a cute little sermon Brother Terry preached. You know, but there's a nice guy and a missionary and he had some miracle stories. And that, that, was, that was a nice little sermon, nice little talk he gave. And that's fine. You can do that. But other people sit there and they just soaked it in and said, I, I'm hungry. I want this, man. I'm, I'm getting this. I'm, that, that's me. He's talking to me. I'm, I'm going to get this. And, and so you end up getting something that somebody sitting behind you in front of you didn't get at all. Are you here? You know, there, there, were, there, there are ministers on the... Well, actually, most of my fathers in the faith are gone now. I've just got a couple left. But, uh, but, but there were men on this planet that were... And, and women that were, that were fathers in the faith, mothers in the faith to me, that uh, literally could speak into my lives. And I received them uh, like John Osteen. We talk, you know, you know, Joel's daddy. John Osteen. John Osteen, I knew since I was 15 years old. I'm not just name dropping. I mean, I knew the man since I was 15 years old. And, uh, and, and I pulled on that gifting of, of, of pastor. I mean, he, I've always said he's the pastor's pastor, man. I mean, he's the, he is the pastor. And, and he was a pastor to me. He wasn't a pastor to everybody, but he was a pastor to me. And uh, somebody else doesn't have to receive him as a pastor. That's no, it's no, it's no big deal. 
But man, I latched on to him. And I said, that, that, that man's my pastor. I didn't, live in, I didn't live in Houston and didn't go to Lakewood Church, but he was my pastor. Man, I'd call him on the phone, talk to him. He'd call me. He's called me all over the world. I've been somewhere, and he'll, and he'll call and say, hey, tell you this, Brother John, you know, and boy, we'd sit and talk and visit, and he'd speak into my life. He was my pastor. Well, you know, Lester Summerall was, was, an, was an apostle to me. T.L. Osborne was, a, was an evangelist to me. These guys were dear friends. These guys were friends. I mean, been in their homes, you know, and eat dinner with them. I'm not talking about I just heard them preach sometime. I mean, I mean, they spoke into my life. Uh, Hilton Sutton was a prophet to me. Kenneth Hagin, Dad Hagin, was a prophet to me. You know, and, and just, just, to, just to talk to him and pick up the phone and say, Dad, I, I need to know. And just the other day I said to Renee, I said, I need to call Brother Hagin. I, 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 man, something's going on. I need to talk to Dad about it. I need to talk to Hilton Sutton about this. I, I need to talk to a prophet. You understand what I'm saying to you? And, of course, there are lots of prophets in the world and lots of pastors in the world, lots of evangelists in the world, lots of, lots of, uh, you know, lots and lots and lots of teachers in the world. I mean, there's just lots of them. But yet they're not, they're not pastors to me, apostles to me, teachers to me, evangelists to me. Does that make sense to you? And, you know, there's people around the world that think that I'm an apostle to them. I don't have to be an apostle to everybody, you know. And, and, and a lot of y'all, you know, you just might say, hey, yeah, Brother Terry came and he's a missionary and he told some miracle stories and that was good. And, and that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But then some of there's, there's some that just lock in and say, hey, Brother Terry, you're, you're my apostle. I mean, I, I need you to speak into my life. I need you to talk to me. I need, I need you to pray about something. I need, and there's, there's a connection because, not because of me, but because they've made demand on the gift. I had a pastor come to me one time at a convention. I was up speaking in the convention, and, and this pastor came to me, and he said, Brother Terry, that's the greatest thing I ever heard, man. That's powerful. That's wonderful. He said, he said would, you, would you be in the apostle to my church? And I said, well, pastor, that's not up to me. That's up to you. It's up to me. I mean, I can say, sure, I'll be the apostle to your church. What does that mean? You're the pastor. Unless you, unless you make it happen, then I have no authority to come to your church. And I said, so you pray about it and you let me know if you want me to be the apostle to your church and you, you let me know, but that's not up to me, that's up to you. You know what, I've never heard from that guy since. Not a phone call, not a letter, not another convention, not another meeting, not an, I mean, I, so I, I assume I'm not the apostle to his church. <laughs> or maybe he tells everybody I am, I don't know, I don't even know where his church is, never been there. But see, that, it's up to you to receive a man or a woman of God. You know, Dodie Osteen, Dodie just turned, what, 82? Is that right? And uh, Joel's mama, Joel's mother. And, and I've known Dodie again since I was 15 years old. And, uh, you know, to this day, you can go to Houston, Texas at Lakewood Church, and, and on Tuesdays you can pull outside in your car, and Dodie will come outside and pray for you in your car. That's just amazing to me, 82 years old. She'll come outside and pray for you. Now, see, there's a real heart there. And see, she's been she's been like she's been a spiritual mama to me since I was fifteen years old. I mean, she she you know she's married to John, and the two of them were the great, as far as I'm concerned, the greatest pastors on the planet. And you know, I don't look to Joel as my pastor at all. I mean, I love Joel. I've known him since he was in diapers, and and, and I love him, and I'm delighted at what he's doing. He's got the biggest church in America, but you know, I, I I receive him as a minister of the gospel, but he's not a he's not a pastor to me. You know where his mama is. Does that make sense to you? That's not putting Joel down in any way, shape, form, or fashion. It's just that he, he, that's not, he's not a pastor to me. He's a pastor to a lot of other folks. I mean, a whole bunch of folks. And I can sit and listen to him and learn from him. I can learn from anybody. I can listen to anybody if they're preaching the Word and learn from them. But, 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 but that, that, that connection's not there. That, that drawing's not there. That, 
Does that make sense to you? You know, I used to go to Brother Hagin's meetings and, and, and still go to like to Brother Copeland's meetings. In fact, in fact, that's why we're going to Washington, D.C. this week. Kenneth and Gloria having a, having a meeting in Washington, D.C. And, 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 and we're going to go out there. We go to that meeting every year and just go out there. Because, and I love that meeting that they do in, in, in Woodbridge, Virginia. And the reason I love it is simply because they don't have any other speakers. And so I can just go hear Kenneth and Gloria. Now, like all the other speakers that speak, but it just takes longer and more days and more time. And, and, and you know, in, in Woodbridge, I, you know, we can buzz into D.C. and we can go, you know, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. And, and you know, Kenneth and Gloria are the only speakers. And so we, we go in there and hear the word and, and leave. But, you know, but I'll pray for two weeks before I go to one of their meetings. I'd pray for two weeks before I'd go to one of Brother Hagin's meetings and say, Father, I'm, I'm expecting to go. And hear the prophet of God. I'm making demand on the gift of the prophet. I'm making, I'm, I'm pulling on the gift of the prophet. I, I'm not just going out there to hear, hear some guy stand up and flop his jaws. I'm not just going out there to hear, hear Brother Hagin teach the word or Brother Coben teach the word. I, I'm not interested in going to hear the teacher. That's not why I'm getting an airplane ticket and a rental car and a hotel. That's not why I'm doing all that. I want to hear what the spirit of the, of the prophet, what the office of the prophet, what the gift of the prophet is saying to the church. Does that make sense to you? So, I mean, I pray for those meetings. So when I go to one of Brother Hagin's meetings, when I go to one of Brother Copeland's meetings, it's like I'm the only one there as far as I'm concerned because I'm pulling. You know, I'm making demand. I'm saying, I'm going to get what, they, what they're saying. I'm going to get what, what the Holy Ghost has for me. And, you know, other people sitting all out there by the thousands, and some of them may feel like I do, and others may just feel like, oh, it's just another seminar. But, you know, I'm determining when I leave, I've got something. Does that make sense? And so these guys, you know, were these guys, Oral Roberts was a personal friend of mine. I mean, can you imagine? And, and I'd just go spend all this time with Oral and, and just go up to the office and have lunch and have dinner. And, and he'd just speak into my life and speak into my life. And, and I was able just to pick up the phone and call him and say, hey, Brother Oral, I need, I need prayer. I need, I need some advice. I need, I need this, that, or the other. And, you know, he, he spoke into my life. Does that make sense to you? Well, now that they're all gone, I mean, Brother Copeland's still here. But, I mean, you know, and my, my mentor in Mexico, Wayne Myers, is 93 now. And Renee and I have been down to see them, what, eight times this year? We just came back from Mexico City last week uh, before we spoke to Brother Copeland and, uh, and, and spent time with Wayne and Martha. And, and, just, and we're going back in January. I'm just trying to go this, this, these, these last this year. I don't know how long Brother Wayne's going to still be with us. So I've just been trying to go about every two or three months, just go down and spend a little time with them and just let him speak into my life. And I'm recording stuff that he's saying and, you know, and listening to stuff that I've heard him say for, I've known him since I was 18 years old, known him for 47 years. And so I know the lifestyle, I know the character, I know the ministry. And so I can just sit there and pull stuff out of him that other people couldn't pull out of him. Does that make sense? So Paul said, I, I'm, I may not be an apostle to you, or excuse me, I may not be an apostle to everybody, but he said, I am to you. I am to you. Let me give you a quick story. Uh, there, there was a young couple years ago in, in Tulsa, and uh, Jackie and I lived in Tulsa, and, and there's this young couple that came to Tulsa from another, from another state, and they had heard me preach because uh, their pastor had had me come in you know, every year and preach at their church, and they loved it when I came to their church and preached and the miracles and all that kind of stuff. And so they loved me, and they came to me one day and said, Brother Terry, we're going to move to Tulsa because we're going to go to Brother Hagin School, Rama. And I said, well, that's great. So when you get to Tulsa, just give us a call, and you know, we'll feed you. Students are always hungry. We'll, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll get you something to eat and spend some time. And so they took advantage of that. They'd call, and so they'd come over to the house, and we'd feed them, and sometimes I'd be out of town. Jackie would just have them over, and she'd feed them, and we, we were able to speak into their lives. 
And they came to us one day and they said, you know, we've been married now for all the several numbers of years and said we're just not able to have children. The doctor said we can't have children. We, we've tried. We can't have children. And yet we know Sister Jackie's had, you know, written Supernatural Childbirth. And, and, it's, and it's, in fact, I think that was probably before Jackie ever came out with Supernatural Childbirth, the book. But yet, yet they knew the story, knew the testimony and all that kind of stuff. And they said, would you all pray for us? Do you think we can have a baby? We said, well, sure, you can have a baby. Well, let's, let's, let's get you a baby. And so we gave them all kind of scriptures. You know, Jackie's book back there, Supernatural Childbirth, is, is amazing to me and always has been because it is so crammed full of scripture. I mean, it's got more scripture in it than any, any book on the charismatic book table. I mean, I'm amazed at the scripture that that book has got in. It's just jammed and crammed with scriptures that, that, you know, that we made work all our lives, not just about babies but about everything else. I mean, Jackie just put everything in there. And, uh, and so, so we gave them all these scriptures and confessed all this stuff, prayed for them. And sure enough, they got pregnant and had a baby. Well, within a year or two, they came to us and said, uh, hey, how about praying for us and getting another baby? And we said, okay. So we prayed for them, and they had another baby. And then they, by this time, graduated from Raymond, moved to another state, started a church, pastored a church, had me come in and preach and, and supported us monthly in missions. And, and, and then they came to us, and they said, hey, would you pray for us for another baby? We said, sure. So we prayed for them, and uh, they got pregnant and had a third baby. And when this third baby was born, uh, the doctors, by their own admission, which I think it was honorable that they admitted it, but, but the doctors, by their own admission, did something wrong. I forget what they did now, but they did something wrong, and, and this lady was paralyzed, totally paralyzed. And they told her, they said, we're so sorry, we did it, our fault, but you'll be paralyzed the rest of your life. You'll never get out of that bed. And they said, uh, they said, you know, you need to bring your attorneys in. We've already called our attorneys, and, and there needs to be a settlement. And, you know, we need to basically we need to take care of you the rest of your life. Well, she said to her husband, now the, her husband's the pastor. But she said to her husband, she said, find Terry. Find Terry, wherever he is in the world, find him and get him on the phone. And so they tracked me down and, uh, and got me on the phone. And she got on the phone with me and started telling me what was going on. And she said, Terry, you're my apostle. She said, I've seen miracles with you. She said, I've been overseas with you. My husband's been overseas with you. We've seen blind eyes open, deaf ears unstopped, cripples walk. We've seen all this stuff. You're my apostle. And she said, I want you to pray for me. And when you pray for me, uh, I'm getting out of this bed. And I said, oh, sweetie, I'm so sorry. I tell you, that's terrible. I'm so sorry. I said, you know, I'm just, my mind was just going ahead. You know, I said, you know, I'll, I, when we hang up, I said, I'll, I'll get on the phone, get an airplane ticket, and, and Jackie's at home in Tulsa, but I'll get her a ticket, and we'll meet, and we'll be at your house. We'll be there tomorrow, the next day at the latest. We'll, we'll be there and get you out of that bed. She said, no, Terry, listen to me. You're not listening. She said, I don't want you to come. You don't need to come. She said, you're my apostle. And she said, I want you just simply to pray for me over the phone. And when you pray for me over the phone and when you speak healing to me over the phone, and she said, she said, don't just pray some little charismatic prayer. She said, you pray a crusade prayer like you pray in crusades. And she said, when you say amen, I'm getting out of this bed. And I said, oh, and that time I got it. And I said, oh, okay, great, sure, all right, let's, let's go, let's pray. Man, I prayed a crusade prayer over her and commanded her body to be healed and her to get out of that bed. And in the name of Jesus, amen, she got right out of that bed completely, totally healed by the power of God. And that was years and years and years ago, and she's still healed today. But see, she made demand on that office of apostle. She had done that. I hadn't done that. I had said, hey, I tell you what, I'll be an apostle to you. No, no, she, she had made that demand. She had made that, that decision to where she, she would pull on that gift every time I'd come to town or every time I'd be around, that she would pull on that, and so she'd get something somebody else didn't get. 
Young man called me from Florida one day that I had, I had cast devils out of him and got him healed. He was bleeding, spitting up blood, all kinds of stuff. I got him healed and got him saved and got him filled with the Holy Ghost. And, and, uh, and he became a partner of our ministry. And he called me one day and he said, Brother Terry said, I'll tell you this story and I'll let you go. It's, it's almost 8 o'clock. But uh, uh, he said, Brother Terry said, I, I hate to ask you to do this. I know you can't do this all the time because you're never home hardly anyway. But he said, I've got an uncle that's uh, dying with cancer. He said he's got a brain tumor that has actually grown so large it has broken through his skin and it's growing outside his head just like it's growing inside his head and the doctors say it's as big on the inside as it is on the outside and, and, and the doctors say he's a walking dead man. There's no hope. There's no help uh, that he's just, he's just dead any day and there's no help for him. And he said he lives, uh, he lives north of Houston in a little town up there north of Houston and he said, is there any possible way you could go pray for him? And I said, yeah. I said, I'm going to be home about four days. And I said, uh, so uh, you meet me. He lived in Florida. I lived in Texas at the time, in the, about four hours away from where this man lived. And, and I said, it's about a four-hour drive from me. I said, you meet me in Houston, and uh, we'll, uh, we'll pray for your uncle and get him healed. And he said, well, I just, I just can't come right now. He said, it's going to be at least two or three weeks before I can get loose from my job. I said, well, listen to me. You're telling me that he's a walking dead man. You're telling me he doesn't have two or three weeks. I mean... You know, if you want me to pray, we need to, we need to, we need to do this. And he said, uh, well, 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 can you go? Can, can you go without me? Can you go, can you go pray for me? He said, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll charter a jet. I'll send a jet and have him, you know, fly, pick you up at your home and fly you out there. Yeah, I don't want you to do that. I don't want you to spend that kind of money. I can drive. It's a four-hour drive. You know, and, 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 and so uh, I said, look, I can go. But I said, here's what you've got to do. Now, y'all listen. This is the important part. I said, your Uncle Billy doesn't know me from Adam. So I have zero spiritual authority to speak into his life. I mean, if I knock on his door and he comes to the door and I say, hey, I'm here to pray for you, he's going to say, uh, go away. I mean, he's just going to treat me like, a, you know, like I'm just a door-to-door salesman or something. I mean, I have no right to speak into his life, no authority to speak into his life. Why would he even listen to me? I said, so what you've got to do before I get there, is you've got to get him on the phone. And I said, you need to tell him every story you've ever heard me tell, every miracle you've ever heard. I said, you need to tell him about raising the dead. You need to tell him how I held a dead baby up for 12 hours and God raised her from the dead. You need to tell him about uh, casting out devils out of witch doctors. You need to tell him about blind eyes open, deaf ears. Open. I said, you need to tell him all these miracles to, to create faith and to create an atmosphere of where he'll let me in his house to pray for him. Because I just can't go pray for him if he won't let me in his house. And I can't pray for him without his permission. Isn't that right? And I said, so you need to call him. And I said, I hate this terminology, but I'm going to use it. I said, you literally need to sell me to him. You know, you need to make him happy that I'm coming. I said, you need to convince him that I'm 10 feet tall and ride a white horse. And whenever I walk in his house, lightning bolts are going to flash under my feet. Now, I understand Jesus is a healer and God gets all the glory, Right? I can't heal a fly with a headache. You understand that? But what I'm saying is you've got to sell me to him so that he sees me as a man of God, that he expects when I pray something's going to happen. Does that make sense? I said, otherwise, it's a wasted drive for me, and he's going to die. And he said, no, no, I can do that, man. I can do that. And so, uh, so I took my oldest son, Lynn. We drove down there four hours. Man, when we got there, that guy opened the door. He said, glad to see us. Oh, Brother Terry, come on in. I'm so glad. I'm so delighted you'd come. Thank you for driving four hours to pray for me. I mean, he's just happy as a hog in a turnip patch. And, uh, and so I sat there and talked to the man for three hours. 
and just trying to locate him and trying to feed him a little faith and, you know, and trying to see where can we hook up, where can I, you know, where can I, you know, make sure I've got authority to pray for him. And, and I talk about all this in my series on spiritual authority. And, uh, and, and so, uh, you know, he, he was a Baptist. I said, are you born again? Yeah. And I said, well, you know, where do you go, Jerry? Well, I'm a Baptist. And, you know, he didn't know about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. He didn't know much about healing and didn't know much about that kind of stuff. But, you know, I said, well, you know, do you, uh, you know, tell me who you listen to on TV. Do you ever listen to any preachers on TV? Because I'm trying to find a, a place of common ground, you know. And, and do you listen to this guy? No. Do you listen to this guy? No. Do you listen to this guy? No. I said, do you listen to John Osteen? He said, oh, yeah. He said, you know, Brother Osteen said, you know, I've, he said, I, I, I've heard of him since I was a kid, and I watch him on TV, and I really I really like to watch him. I said, great. Well, Brother Osteen's a good friend of mine, and, and he preaches, and what I preach are the same thing. You know, and you're just trying to find some a place, uh, to common ground, to get him on board. Finally, after three hours, I said, uh, I'm ready to pray for you. You ready to pray? And he said, yes, sir, I'm ready to pray. And I said, all right, now, I said, now here's what we're going to do. I said, the Bible says, Jesus said, lay hands on the sick in the name of Jesus. They'll recover. He said, I said, you familiar with that? Yeah, yeah, I'm familiar with that. I said, all right. I said, so I'm going to lay my hand on that cancer. I'm going to put my hand on that thing. And I said, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to curse it. I'm actually going to talk to it. I said, you familiar with Mark chapter 11 where Jesus spoke to the fig tree? He just talked to this tree and said, no man eat fruit of thee hereafter forever. He didn't pray about the tree. He didn't think about the tree. He didn't ask God to kill the tree. He just talked to the tree. And it dried up from its life source, dried up from its roots, and died. He said, yes, sir, I, I, I've heard that. And I said, all right. I said, that's exactly what I'm going to do. I said, I'm going to talk to that tumor. And, you know, the church needs to start understanding the power of life and death is in the tongue. And we need to understand that these, some of these, well, all diseases are your enemy. They're not a friendly disease out there. They're not a good disease out there. And, and we need to treat them as the enemy that they are. You know, don't don't start cohabitating with those things and just just you know just kind of you know invite it in for coffee and tea. I mean, you 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 need to treat it like a rattlesnake. Now, I don't know about y'all, but I was raised in West Texas. We had rattlesnakes everywhere, and I tell you, I never I never met a rattlesnake I liked. In fact, I never met a rattlesnake I didn't kill, Dale. And uh, and if I found one tonight, I'd kill it tonight. Uh, and you know, that's just there's just there's just no love lost between me and rattlesnakes. And so you need to see cancer that same way. You need to see uh, lupus that same way, leukemia that same way, AIDS, HIV. I mean, any of that kind of stuff that, that's a parasite eating your body, then you need to see it as this mortal enemy that you're in combat with and that one of you is going to die. I mean, either the cancer is going to die or you're going to die. And that's what doctors do. Doctors take radiation and take chemotherapy and they, and they try to focus it to, to kill and destroy those cancer cells. And that's wonderful. You know, the, the downside is it, they end, it end up killing other good, good cells around and, and, and that sort of thing. But yet the focus and the point and the purpose is it's killing the cancer cells. That's the right idea. So that's what you want to do with the anointing of God. That's what you want to do with the power of God, the name of Jesus, is you want to kill that stuff. And so that's what I said to him. I said, I said I'm going to curse that cancer, and I'm going to speak to it, and I'm going to tell it to die the power of life and death in the tongue, and I'm going to tell it to wither and die and dry up from its very roots and turn loose and get out of your head, and, uh, and I'm, then I'm going to speak life to you, death to it, life to you. I said, you understand that? He said, yes, sir, I understand all that. 
So I said, all right. So I laid hands on that thing and cursed it and, and damned it in the name of Jesus and rebuked it and commanded it to die. And the power of life death's in the tongue. You wither and you die and you turn loose from your very roots and you, you, you dry up and quit parasiting off his body and you, you die and get out of his body in Jesus' name. And I speak life to him, the Zoe life of God, that he'll live and not die and declare the works of the Lord. And, and anyway, we, I prayed. And, uh, left there and went home. That was in May of one particular year. And I didn't hear anything the rest of the month or June or July or August. And in August, I'm flying back in from Cuba or somewhere I'm preaching in the Caribbean. Think Cuba, Cuba or Haiti, both maybe. And uh, fly back into Florida where this young man's from, the nephew. And uh, I preached on Sunday morning at a great church there. And he comes, comes up to me and and his, and, his, and his wife and his parents, they come up to me and grab me and hug me. Oh, Brother Chad, it's a great sermon. We love it when you come. Praise the Lord, blah, 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 blah. I said, wait, 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 wait. I said, whatever happened to your Uncle Billy? I said, I went to pray for him in May. Here it is, August. I hadn't heard word one. What's going on with him? And they just all, all four of them just, just drunk, ducked their head like this. And he said, well, Brother Terry, so I've just got bad news. I've just got bad news. He said, he, he's, he's, uh, he's just the same. He's just a walking dead man. And I said, he's still alive, right? And he said, well, yeah, he's still alive, but he's a walking dead man. And so I just grabbed him by the shoulder and started shaking him. I said, listen to me. I said, you don't ever let me hear you talk like that again. I said, you get him on the phone today. You go get him on the phone now. Tell him you talk to me and tell him that Terry Myers said, I cursed that cancer. I cursed it in the name of Jesus. I command it to die, command it to wither, to turn loose from its roots, to get out of his body. And that's the way it's going to be, that he'll live and not die. And that cancer cannot live in his body in Jesus' name. And don't you ever talk like that again. He's, yes, sir. Yes, sir. I can do that. Yes, sir. And so I leave. Toward the end of August, I, I fly to Hawaii, and I'm ministering at a, at a men's camp off on the western end of Oahu, and, and, and yet back off the beach. I know why in the world they didn't let us get on the beach. I do not know. But we were back off in the desert, just in some mountains out there, out, 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 off, out off Waianae, and we're out in the middle of this desert. And, uh, and so I'm preaching to these men at this men's camp for several days. And, uh, in fact, I think you and, uh, I think you and Dean... Uh, and, and, and your daughter Abigail was was with us. You know, my, my Jackie was with us, and and uh, they went with us, and several of our kids went with us. We're all out there, and and, and I'm going in. Dean and I are going in preaching this men's camp, and uh, and my phone rang one night about about time for church, about 7 p.m. In, in in Hawaii, which is the wee hours of the morning in Texas and Florida, and and it's this young man in Florida, and he said, uh, he's oh brother Terry he said I just had to call you and tell you what's been going on all day long, all day long. And I said, well, tell me quick. I need to, I need to hear what's going on, but I'm about to walk in here and, and preach. And he said, well, he said a few days ago, he said, my uncle woke up and uh, he was just covered in blood. And he said uh, his wife took him to the hospital there in that small town. They live up north of Houston. They took him to the hospital and said they, you know, they cauterized everything and cleaned everything up and bandaged everything. And, uh, and, and, and so he went back into Houston, the MD Anderson Cancer Center, and just so they could, you know, see about it. And he said they literally told him, you know, and they called him by name, Mr. So-and-so, said, you know, we've told you there's no reason for you to come back. Said there's not anything we can do for you. There's not anything we can do to help you. And we've tried to treat you, but there's no help, and we're sorry. And, and he said, you're just sending me home to die. They said, well, yes, you know, we've already done that. We've already sent you home to die. And, uh, you know, you're, 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 you're still alive. We don't know why. But... Uh, but, you know, there's nothing we can do for you. You just, you know, you just need to go on home. And so he left the hospital, left MD Anderson, and went to uh, his personal doctor. 
and, and said, you've got to do something for me. And his personal doctor said to him, he said, you know, Billy, I've done something for you every time. I mean, there's just nothing that can be done. You just, you, you're, you're going to die. There's no, there's no way around this thing. You just, there's no help. There's no hope. There's nothing I can do. And he said, well, you've got to do something. I'm just going to sit here in your office and you can do something. And so the doctor said, well, I'll tell you what I'll do. He said, uh, he said I'll, uh, I'll take an MRI. And he told him later, he said he only did it just to get him out of his office. He said, uh, he said I'll take an MRI of this thing. And he said, there's a doctor I know of in Denver, Colorado, that in my opinion is the greatest there is about reading these things. That's what the doctor told him. That's not what I'm saying. The doctor said, this guy's the best in the world as far as I know about reading these things. So we'll just send the MRI to him and see what he says. He said, okay. So they took an MRI. He goes back home. And uh, this young man tells me that he said, now yesterday, said this doctor in Denver called my Uncle Billy and and said, "Uh, I want you to tell me the history of this tumor. And he said, he did. He sat and told him the whole history of the tumor. And he said, uh, uh, all right. He said, I want you to get on an airplane, and I want you to be at my office tomorrow. I want you to fly out to Denver and be in my office tomorrow. And he said, well, all right, I'll be glad to do that. But he said, can you, can you tell me why? And the doctor said to him, he said, well, he said, I, I, I've just never, ever seen anything like this before in my life. He said, I've read thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of these things, and I've never, ever seen one like this. He said, the best I can tell, he said, that tumor, that cancerous tumor is free-floating in your head like an onion, and it's not attached anywhere. It's like all the roots have just detached and, and, and dried up, and it, it's just, it, doesn't, it doesn't seem to be attached to your body at all. It's just free-floating in, you, in your head. And so Billy started yelling, that's what Terry Mine said. He cursed it to the roots. He cursed it and commanded it to fall. And the doctor said, well, I don't know anything about that. I just know I want to see you. And he said, okay, I'll be there. I'll be there tomorrow. And so that's the day I'm now talking to the young man on the phone. He said, so this morning, he said, my Uncle Billy got up to, to get ready to go to the airport and fly to Denver. He said he walked in the bathroom, looked himself in the mirror to get ready. And he said that thing fell out of his head in the sink. And he said it just left this gaping hole in his head. And he said, and it didn't hardly bleed this time. He said, a few days ago, it bled terribly. He said, this time it didn't hardly bleed at all. And he said, so his wife, you know, stuck a towel around his head and rushed him to the little hospital there in the town they live in. And uh, the, 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 they cleaned it all up and bandaged it all up. And uh, they, said, uh, they said, have you still got that thing? He said, well, yeah, it's at home in the sink. And they said, well, go get it and put it on ice and take it to MD Anderson. They've got to see this. They've got to see what's going on. And so they went back and got it and put it on ice and took it to M.D. Anderson. And he said, they, he said, they were there all day today. He said, I mean, it's been hours and hours and hours and hours. He said, they brought in the oncologist and the specialist, and they brought in everybody. And said, they, they said they weighed that thing. It weighed five pounds. And, and he, said, said, uh, he said, they've examined the hole in his head, and they, they've just finally come to the conclusion there's no cancer cells and so on and so forth. All they got to do now is just do plastic surgery and close up this this hole in his head. Now, but see, that all comes from the point that this kid called me and said, Brother Terry, you're an apostle to me. You know, and, and he was making demand on that gift all this time. He said, Brother Terry, you're, you're an apostle to me. I don't know who else to call about this kind of thing. Now, obviously, there's lots of people that have miracle ministry, but he, and he didn't know anybody but me that he, that he had that kind of relationship and knew that he could, he could call and, and get a hold of and so on. So does that make any sense to you? When you're on your way to a miracle, remember, God's the initiator of miracles. He thought them up. He invented them. It's his idea. And if the bottom falls out, just stay with it. Just stay with it. Stay with it. Remember what Jairus said, what Jesus said to, to Jairus, and don't say anything dumb, and just stay with your faith, stay with your confession, stay with God, and, and, and see this thing through. Amen? And then learn on these ministry gifts, learn, learn to tap into them. 
Learn to make demand on, on Pastor Mike. I mean, you'll, you'll get so much more out of it uh, if you'll learn to actually actually make demand on that ministry. And then everybody that, everybody that he, he has come in here. You know, I mean, here, here I saw on the advertisement that y'all having Franklin Graham in here in December. I mean, dear Lord, what a... What a powerful, wonderful, marvelous ministry that is. And, and what's crazy to me is some people will miss it. You know, and it's kind of like, you know, you'd go hear Paul but not receive him, go hear Jesus not receive him, got a chance to go hear Franklin Graham and don't care. It's like, those, that's when we need to make demand on those, on those kind of things. You know, you, you know, Franklin Graham was Samaritan's person. I, I assume from, from your video today that you all get involved with the Christmas shoe boxes and stuff where they're taking Christmas around the world. What a marvelous, marvelous thing that you can tap into and be a part of all that. You know, it's just like us taking Christmas to orphanages. We need to support these 11 different orphanages. And these orphanages, by the way, aren't ours. I don't know if, if, if when Mark said a while ago, orphanages or, or Renee, uh, you know, they're, they're, not, they're not ours. There's one. There's one in India that's ours. That we make the decision, we totally support it, we're the boss, and hire and fire and, and all that kind of stuff. All these others are just orphanages that I have very close relations with, with and have for many, many years. And then there's one in particular in Romania that I have extreme favor and authority in, and it's almost like a private orphanage. And I've literally known those kids since they were infants. I mean, I know their names, I know them by sight. You know, I know what they're doing in school. I mean, I mean, you know, there's a relationship there. And then there's other orphanages. I don't know the kids. I've just been to them, visited with them, pat them on the head, and then I give money to them. And, and then on Christmas time, we help them with, with finances, with Christmas presents, because people forget about orphans and missionaries a lot of times at Christmas time. That's why Franklin's doing what he's doing, because people get busy, and you've got kids and grandkids you're buying Christmas for. We kind of forget about, uh, you know, things around. I mean, that's sometimes Christmas is a stressful time. And so, you know, those kids get left out. So anyway, I just want you to understand that the government of Romania did call me in and talk to me on three different occasions and asked me if I would take three different orphanages there, if I'd just totally take them. And I said, I absolutely will if you'll take your hands off of them and sign them over to me and I can hire my staff and fire your staff and, and I can do what I want to do. And they said, yeah, that's great, but they just never did do it. So I still help those orphanages and do things for them. And last year, a boiler went out in one of the orphanages, and we replaced the boiler. And, 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 and you know, uh, one year, the government of Romania shut their kitchen down and said, you can't, you know, you, you have to cook outside because now we're requiring that all institutions have a stainless steel kitchen. So we went in there and put a stainless steel kitchen in, and, you know, and, and then one little orphan, one orphanage with 120 girls in it. Uh, I went there, and the girls were using the bathroom outside. There's no facilities inside. So we went in there and made a beautiful Western-style bathroom. That these girls were thrilled with. I mean, we put mirrors everywhere. We put stalls. We put showers. We put, we put you know, uh, toilets and sinks. And, and plus, we put a big hot tub in. I mean, you know, we, we spent some money and, and, and to, bless, to bless these kids. So, so I'm very involved, but they're not ours. I wish they were ours. But uh, so uh, somebody was trying to, you know, some pastor called me not very long ago, and uh, just, just within the last month. And he said, he said, you know, there's somebody telling them telling that you don't really have any orphanages that you just raise money and take it for yourself. And I said, well, I know who that preacher is. He's an idiot. And he, he, and, and, and he said the same thing 20 years ago. He started telling people 20 years ago the same thing. And, and, I, and so I sent this pastor a whole bunch of pictures of these kids for years and years and years. And, you know, and I said, you know, uh, th- th- we do have one, one that's totally ours, but we're just heavily involved in some others. And then others we just bless and help and give money to and have no authority whatsoever but uh you know so i'm not trying to tell people we we own 11 orphanages i'm just saying we we give a lot of money to 11 orphanages and uh, and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of kids and a bunch of kids in haiti two years ago you guys sent us money pastor mike sent me money the last 
three years from you guys uh, to help orphans for Christmas. And, and uh, the, the orphanage in Haiti called me. There's 300 kids in, in, in two different places, uh, three different places there. And uh, they called me and said, Brother Terry said, uh, uh, we just want to ask you if it's okay. I think I sent them $15,000 for Christmas for, for all these kids and the workers and what have you. And they said, we just want to know if, if uh, the kids want to know if, if they can buy goats for Christmas. And I said, no, they can't buy goats for Christmas. I said, this is Christmas money. And they said, well, we know, but they want, they want goats for Christmas. I said, no, they don't. I know kids. They don't want goats for Christmas. They want toys and, you know, and video games and, you know, soccer balls and baby dolls. And, you know, I got kids and grandkids. I know what they want for Christmas. They said, no, but you don't understand. I said, some of us were orphans, and we raised goats. And, and you know, when you have a goat, and, you know, they get, you get milk, and, and then, you know, you, you, you breed them and get more goats and more goats and more goats, and you sell them, and, and it gives them a responsibility and something to do. And, and so we had goats, and these, these kids are really wanting goats. I said, are you sure you're telling me the truth? I mean, I know these people real well, but I said, are you sure? They said, yes, Brother Terry. I said, well, all right, if, that, if that's what the kids want, if they want goats, for a Christmas present, then it's all right with me. So some of your money went to buy goats <laughs> for Christmas presents. So, uh, and of course we do that, you know, do that every year. But but it, it's one of those things where you can tap into ministries. You know, you you tap into Pastor Mike. You tap into different people uh, that come in to speak. You get anything out of all this tonight? <laughs> you know, Pastor Mike will be back in the pulpit next Sunday, a week from today. He'll be in this pulpit ministering to you. And Shaney's going to be ministering to you this Wednesday night. And so, you know, I don't know if you know this or not, but church is one of my favorite things on the planet. I think, I think it's one of the best ideas God had after the garden and after salvation. I think that church was the best thing he came up with because it puts us together corporately where we can do something for God corporately. And I, I, just, think, I just think it's a marvelous institution and a marvelous thing. So I encourage you just absolutely... Grab, grab pastor by the coattail and say, Pastor, you pastor this thing and we'll back you. We're with you. Amen? And that's how churches go on and, and, and their successes and do the tremendous things that they do because, because of a, a great pastor and the great people. Amen? It's not just the pastor and not just the people, but it's the whole, the whole team together getting the job done. And that's what Jesus had. Jesus had all those disciples he had in his ministry. And not only, not only did he have all those disciples, the Bible says he had a whole bunch of women that traveled with him everywhere he went. You read Luke chapter 1, Luke chapter 8 and verse 1. It says, it says that, that everywhere he went, the disciples went, the 12 went with him. We all know that. It said, and many women. And then it, and then it actually lists three of them. It says Joanna, Susanna, and, uh, uh, and Mary Magdalene, out of whom he cast seven devils. And so it actually lists, and it's a big deal in the Bible when it lists ladies' names, women's names. So it actually lists three of these ladies. And it says, and Joanna uh, was the wife of a guy named Chusa, and Chusa was Herod's steward. That's all in Luke chapter 8, verse 1. And it says, Joanna is the wife of Chusa, and Chusa is Herod's steward. So the guy that's taking care of Herod, King, Her- King Herod's money, his wife's running around with Jesus. And it says, and these women, many women, it says, and they ministered to him, to Jesus, of their substance. So, you know, you had all the disciples going with Jesus. You had these women going with Jesus. And that's what made all those miracles happen, what made all those people come. And they were gathering people in and bringing to him sick people and stuff. It wasn't just Jesus showed up and started praying for sick people. It was, it was people bringing sick people. Isn't that right? And time and time again, you see there in the Bible, it says, and they brought to him blind and deaf and lame and demon possessed. They brought to him. He didn't go out and get them. They brought them to him. 
Just like the four men that brought the crippled guy and let him down through the roof. They, they brought him to Jesus and Jesus healed him. Well, go ahead and stand up with me if you would.